Chapters seventy nine and eighty of the Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter seventy nine. The question now arose what was to be done with the children. I explained to Ernest that their expenses must be charged to the estate, and showed him how small a hole all the various items I proposed to charge would make in the income at my disposal. He was beginning to make difficulties, when I quieted him by pointing out that the money had all come to me from his aunt, over his own head, and reminded him that there had been an understanding between her and me that I should do much as I was doing if occasion should arise. He wanted his children to be brought up in the fresh, pure air, and among other children who were happy and contented. But being still ignorant of the fortune that awaited him, he insisted that they should pass their earlier years among the poor rather than the rich. I remonstrated, but he was very decided about it, and when I reflected that they were illegitimate, I was not sure but that what Ernest proposed might be as well for everyone in the end. They were still so young that it did not much matter where they were, so long as they were with kindly, decent people and in a healthy neighborhood. I shall be just as unkind to my children, he said, as my grandfather was to my father, or my father to me. If they did not succeed in making their children love them, neither shall I. I say to myself that I should like to do so, but so did they. I can make sure that they shall not know how much they would have hated me if they had had much to do with me. But this is all I can do. If I must ruin their prospects, let me do so at a reasonable time before they are old enough to feel it. He mused a little and added with a laugh, a man first quarrels with his father about three-quarters of a year before he is born. It is then he insists on setting up a separate establishment. When this has been once agreed to, the more complete the separation for ever after, the better for both. Then he said more seriously, I want to put the children where they will be well and happy and where they will not be betrayed into the misery of false expectations. In the end, he remembered that on his Sunday walks he had more than once seen a couple who lived on the waterside, a few miles below Gravesend, just where the sea was beginning, and who he thought would do. They had a family of their own fast coming on, and the children seemed to thrive. Both father and mother, indeed, were comfortable, well-grown folks, in whose hands young people would likely to have as fair a chance of coming to a good development as in those of any whom he knew. We went down to see this couple, and as I thought no less well of them than Ernest did, we offered them a pound a week to take the children and bring them up as though they were their own. They jumped at the offer and in another day or two we brought the children down and left them, feeling that we had done as well as we could by them, at any rate, for the present. Then Ernest sent his small stock of goods to Debenham's, 
gave up the house he had taken two and a half years previously, and returned to civilization. I had expected that he would now rapidly recover, and was disappointed to see him get, as I thought, decidedly worse. Indeed, before long I thought him looking so ill that I insisted on his going with me to consult one of the most eminent doctors in London. This gentleman said there was no acute disease, but that my young friend was suffering from nervous prostration, the result of long and severe mental suffering, from which there was no remedy except time, prosperity, and rest. He said that Ernest must have broken down later on, but that he might have gone on for some months yet. It was the suddenness of the relief from tension which had knocked him over now. "'Cross him,' said the doctor, "'at once. Crossing is the great medical discovery of the age. Shake him out of himself by shaking something else into him.' I had not told him that money was no object to us and I think he had reckoned me up as not over-rich. He continued, Seeing is a mode of touching. Touching is a mode of feeding. Feeding is a mode of assimilation. Assimilation is a mode of recreation and reproduction. And this is crossing. Shaking yourself into something else, and something else into you. He spoke laughingly but it was plain he was serious. He continued, People are always coming to me who want crossing, or change if you prefer it, and who I know have not money enough to let them get away from London. This has set me thinking how I can best cross them even if they cannot leave home, and I have made a list of cheap London amusements which I recommend to my patients. None of them cost more than a few shillings, or take more than half a day or a day. I explained that there was no occasion to consider money in this case. I am glad of it, he said, still laughing. The homeopathists use aurum as a medicine, but they do not give it in large doses enough. If you can dose your young friend with this pretty freely, you will soon bring him round. However, Mr. Pontifex is not well enough to stand so great a change as going abroad yet. From what you tell me, I should think he had had as much change lately as is good for him. If he were to go abroad now, he would probably be taken seriously ill within a week. We must wait till he has recovered tone a little more. I will begin by ringing my London changes on him. He thought a little, and then said, I have found the zoological gardens of service to many of my patients. I should prescribe for Mr. Pontifex a course of the larger mammals. Don't let him think he is taking them medicinally, but let him go to their house twice a week for a fortnight, and stay with the hippopotamus, the rhinoceros, and the elephants till they begin to bore him. I find these beasts do my patients more good than any others. The monkeys are not a wide enough cross. They do not stimulate sufficiently. The larger carnivora are unsympathetic. The reptiles are worse than useless, and the marsupials are not much better. 
Birds, again, except parrots, are not very beneficial. He may look at them now and again, but with the elephants and the pig tribe generally he should mix just now as freely as possible. Then, you know, to prevent monotony, I should send him, say, to morning service at the abbey before he goes. He need not stay longer than the te diem. I don't know why, but jubilates are seldom satisfactory. Just let him look in at the abbey, and sit quietly in Poet's Corner till the main part of the music is over. Let him do this two or three times, not more, before he goes to the zoo. Then next day send him down to Gravesend by boat. By all means let him go to the theatres in the evenings, and then let him come to see me again in a fortnight. Had the doctor been less eminent in his profession, I should have doubted whether he was in earnest. But I knew him to be a man of business who would neither waste his own time nor that of his patients. As soon as we were out of the house we took a cab to Regent's Park and spent a couple of hours in sauntering round the different houses. Perhaps it was on account of what the doctor had told me, but I certainly became aware of a feeling I had never experienced before. I mean that I was receiving an influx of new life, or deriving new ways of looking at life, which is the same thing, by the process. I found the doctor quite right in his estimate of the larger mammals as the ones which on the whole were most beneficial, and observed that Ernest, who had heard nothing of what the doctor had said to me, lingered instinctively in front of them. As for the elephants, especially the baby elephant, he seemed to be drinking in large draughts of their lives to the recreation and regeneration of his own. We dined in the gardens, and I noticed with pleasure that Ernest's appetite was already improved. Since this time, whenever I have been a little out of sorts myself, I have at once gone up to Regent's Park, and have invariably been benefited. I mention this here in the hope that some one or other of my readers may find the hint a useful one. At the end of his fortnight my hero was much better, more so even than our friend the doctor had expected. Now, he said, Mr. Pontifex may go abroad, and the sooner the better. Let him stay a couple of months. This was the first Ernest had heard about his going abroad, and he talked about my not being able to spare him for so long. I soon made this all right. It is now the beginning of April, said I. Go down to Marseille at once, and take steamer to Nice, then saunter down the Riviera to Genoa, from Genoa go to Florence, Rome, and Naples, and come home by way of Venice and the Italian lakes. "'And won't you come, too?' he said eagerly. "'I said I did not mind if I did. "'So we began to make our arrangements next morning, "'and completed them within a very few days. "'Chapter 80 "'We left by the night mail, crossing from Dover. "'The night was soft, and there was a bright moon upon the sea.' Don't you love the smell of grease about the engine of a channel steamer? Isn't there a lot of hope in it? said Ernest to me, for he had been to Normandy one summer as a boy with his father and mother, 
and the smell carried him back to days before those in which he had begun to bruise himself against the great outside world. I always think one of the best parts of going abroad is the first thud of the piston and the first gurgling of the water when the paddle begins to strike it. It was very dreamy getting out at Calais, the trudging about with luggage in a foreign town at an hour when we were generally both of us in bed and fast asleep. But we settled down to sleep as soon as we got into the railway carriage and dozed till we had passed Amiens. Then waking when the first signs of morning crispness were beginning to show themselves, I saw that Ernest was already devouring every object we passed with quick, sympathetic curiousness. There was not a peasant in a blouse driving his cart betimes along the road to market, not a signalman's wife in her husband's hat and coat waving a green flag, not a shepherd taking out his sheep to the dewy pastures, not a bank of opening cowslips as we passed through the railway cuttings but he was drinking it all in with an enjoyment too deep for words. The name of the engine that drew us was Mozart, an earnest like this, too. We reached Paris by six, and had just time to get across the town and take a morning express train to Marseille. But before noon my young friend was tired out and had resigned himself to a series of sleeps which were seldom intermitted for more than an hour or so together. He fought against this for a time, but in the end consoled himself by saying it was so nice to have so much pleasure that he could afford to throw a lot of it away. Having found a theory on which to justify himself, he slept in peace. At Marseilles we rested, and there the excitement of the change proved, as I had feared it would, too much for my godson's still enfeebled state. For a few days he was really ill, but after this he righted. For my own part, I reckon being ill as one of the great pleasures of life, provided one is not too ill and is not obliged to work till one is better. I remember being ill once in a foreign hotel myself, and how much I enjoyed it, to lie there careless of everything, quiet and warm, with no weight upon the mind, to hear the clinking of the plates in the far-off kitchen as the scullion rinsed them and put them by, to watch the soft shadows come and go upon the ceiling as the sun came out or went behind a cloud, to listen to the pleasant murmurings of the fountain in the court below and the shaking of the bells on the horses' collars, and the clink of their hoofs upon the ground, as the flies plagued them. Not only to be a lotus-eater, but to know that it was one's duty to be a lotus-eater. Oh, I thought to myself, if I could only now, having so forgotten care, drop off to sleep for ever, would not this be a better piece of fortune? than any I could ever hope for? Of course it would, but we would not take it though it were offered us. No matter what evil may befall us, we will mostly abide by it and see it out. I could see that Ernest felt much as I had felt myself. He said little, but noted everything. Once only did he frighten me. 
he had called me to his bedside just as it was getting dusk, and said in a grave, quiet manner that he should like to speak to me. "'I have been thinking,' he said, "'that I may perhaps never recover from this illness, and in case I do not I should like you to know that there is only one thing which weighs upon me. I refer,' he continued after a slight pause, to my conduct towards my father and mother. I have been much too good to them. I treated them much too considerately. On which he broke into a smile, which assured me that there was nothing seriously amiss with him. On the walls of his bedroom were a series of French Revolution prints, representing events in the life of Lycurgus. There was Grandeur Dame de Lycurgus, and Le Cougou Consu Le Rac, and there was Calciope à la Cour. Under this was written in French and Spanish. Modèle de grâce et de beauté, la jeune Calciope, non moins sage que belle, avait mérité l'estime et l'attachement du vertueux Lycurgus. Vivement et pris de tant de charme, l'illustre philosophe la conduisait dans le temple de Junon, où ils s'unirent par un serment sacré. Après cette auguste cérémonie, Lycurgus s'empressa de conduire sa jeune épouse au palais de son frère Polydec, roi de Lacédémon. Seigneur, lui dit-il, la vertueuse Calciope vient de recevoir mes voeux au pied des hôtels. J'ose vous prier d'approuver cette union. Le roi témoigna d'abord quelques surprises, mais l'estime qu'il avait pour son frère lui inspira une réponse pleine de bienveillance. Il s'approcha aussitôt de Calciope qu'il embrassa tendrement, convoi ensuite Lycurgus de prévenance et parut très satisfait. He called my attention to this, and then said, somewhat timidly, that he would rather have married Ellen than Calciope. I saw he was hardening, and made no hesitation about proposing that in another day or two we should proceed upon our journey. I will not weary the reader by taking him with us over beaten ground. We stopped at Siena, Cortona, Orvieto, Perugia, and many other cities, and then after a fortnight passed between Rome and Naples, went to the Venetian provinces and visited all those wondrous towns that lie between the southern slopes of the Alps and the northern ones of the Apennines, coming back at last by the St. Gothard. I doubt whether he had enjoyed the trip more than I did myself, but it was not till we were on the point of returning that Ernest had recovered strength enough to be called fairly well and it was not for many months that he so completely lost all sense of the wounds which the last four years had inflicted on him, as to feel as though there were a scar, and a scar only, remaining. They say that when people have lost an arm or a foot, they feel pains in it now and again for a long while after they have lost it. One pain which he had almost forgotten came upon him on his return to England. I mean the sting of his having been imprisoned. As long as he was only a small shopkeeper, his imprisonment mattered nothing. Nobody knew of it, and if they had known, they would not have cared. Now, however, though he was returning to his old position, he was returning to it disgraced, and the pain from which he had been saved in the first instance by surroundings so new that he had hardly recognized his own identity in the middle of them, came on him as from a wound inflicted yesterday. 
he thought of the high resolves which he had made in prison about using his disgrace as a vantage-ground of strength rather than trying to make people forget it. That was all very well then, he thought to himself, when the grapes were beyond my reach, but now it is different. Besides, who but a prig would set himself high aims or make high resolves at all? Some of his old friends, on learning that he had got rid of his supposed wife, and was now comfortably off again, wanted to renew their acquaintance. He was grateful to them, and sometimes tried to meet their advances half-way. But it did not do, and ere long he shrank back into himself, pretending not to know them. An infernal demon of honesty haunted him which made him say to himself, these men know a great deal, but do not know all. If they did, they would cut me, and therefore I have no right to their acquaintance. He thought that everyone except himself was sans peur et sans reproche. Of course they must be, for if they had not been, would they not have been bound to warn all who had anything to do with them of their deficiencies? Well, he could not do this, and he would not have people's acquaintance under false pretenses, so he gave up even hankering after rehabilitation, and fell back upon his old tastes for music and literature. Of course he has long since found out how silly all this was. How silly I mean in theory, for in practice it worked better than it ought to have done, by keeping him free from liaisons which would have tied his tongue, and made him see success elsewhere than where he came in time to see it. He did what he did instinctively, and for no other reason than because it was most natural to him. So far as he thought at all, he thought wrong. But what he did was right. I said something of this kind to him once, not so very long ago, and told him he had always aimed high. I never aimed at all, he replied a little indignantly and you may be sure I should have aimed low enough if I had thought I had got the chance. I suppose, after all, that no one whose mind was not, to put it mildly, abnormal, ever yet aimed very high out of pure malice of forethought. I once saw a fly alight a cup of hot coffee on which the milk had formed a thin skin. He perceived his extreme danger and I noted with what ample strides and almost superhuman effort he struck across the treacherous surface and made for the edge of the cup, for the ground was not solid enough to let him raise himself from it by his wings. As I watched him I fancied that so supreme a moment of difficulty and danger might leave him with an increase of moral and physical power which might even descend in some measure to his offspring. But surely he would not have got the increased moral power if he could have helped it, and he will not knowingly alight upon another cup of hot coffee. The more I see, the more sure I am that it does not matter why people do the right thing, so long only as they do it, nor why they may have done the wrong thing, if they have done it. The result depends upon the thing done, and the motive goes for nothing. I have read somewhere, but cannot remember where, that in some country district there was once a great scarcity of food, 
during which the poor suffered acutely. Many indeed actually died of starvation, and all were hard put to it. In one village, however, there was a poor widow with a family of young children, who, though she had a small visible means of subsistence, still looked well-fed and comfortable, as also did all her little ones. How, everyone asked, did they manage to live? It was plain they had a secret, and it was equally plain that it could be no good one. For there came a hurried, hunted look over the poor woman's face if anyone alluded to the way in which she and hers throve when others starved. The family, moreover, were sometimes seen out at unusual hours of the night, and evidently brought things home, which could hardly have been honestly come by. They knew they were under suspicion, and, being hitherto of excellent name, it made them very unhappy, for it must be confessed that they believe what they did to be uncanny, if not absolutely wicked. Nevertheless, in spite of this, they throve, and kept their strength when all their neighbors were pinched. At length matters came to a head, and the clergyman of the parish cross-questioned the poor woman so closely that with many tears and a bitter sense of degradation she confessed the truth. She and her children went into the hedges and gathered snails, which they made into broth and ate. Could she ever be forgiven? Was there any hope of salvation for her, either in this world or the next after such unnatural conduct? So again I have heard of an old dowager countess, whose money was all in consuls. She had had many sons, and in her anxiety to give the younger ones a good start, wanted a larger income than consuls would give her. She consulted her solicitor and was advised to sell her consoles and invest in the London and North Western Railway, then about eighty-five. This was to her what eating snails was to the poor widow whose story I have told above. With shame and grief, as of one doing an unclean thing, but her boys must have their start, she did as she was advised. Then for a long while she could not sleep at night, and was haunted by the presage of disaster. Yet what happened? She started her boys, and in a few years found her capital doubled into the bargain, on which she sold out and went back again to consuls, and died in the full blessedness of fund-holding. She thought indeed that she was doing a wrong and dangerous thing but this had absolutely nothing to do with it. Suppose she had invested in the full confidence of a recommendation by some eminent London banker, whose advice was bad, and so had lost all her money, and suppose she had done this with a light heart and with no conviction of sin. Would her innocence of evil purpose and the excellence of her motive have stood her in any stead? Not they— but to return to my story. Townley gave my hero most trouble. Townley, as I have said, knew that Ernest would have money soon, but Ernest did not, of course, know that he knew it. Townley was rich himself, and was married now. Ernest would be rich soon, 
had bona fide intended to be married already, and would doubtless marry a lawful wife later on. Such a man was worth taking pains with, and when Townley one day met Ernest in the street, and Ernest tried to avoid him, Townley would not have it, but with his usual quick good nature read his thoughts, caught him, morally speaking, by the scruff of the neck, and turned him laughingly inside out, telling him he would have no such nonsense. Townley was just as much Ernest's idol now as he had ever been, and Ernest, who was very easily touched, felt more gratefully and warmly than ever towards him. But there was an unconscious something which was stronger than Townley, and made my hero determined to break with him more determinedly, perhaps, than with any other living person. He thanked him in a low, hurried voice, and pressed his hand, while tears came into his eyes in spite of all his efforts to repress them. If we meet again, he said, do not look at me, but if hereafter you hear of me writing things you do not like, think of me as charitably as you can. And so they parted. Townley is a good fellow, said I gravely, and you should not have cut him. Townley, he answered, is not only a good fellow, but he is without exception the very best man I ever saw in my life, except he paid me the compliment of saying, yourself. Townley is my notion of everything which I should most like to be, but there is no real solidarity between us. I should be in perpetual fear of losing his good opinion if I said things he did not like, and I mean to say a great many things, he continued more merrily, which Townley will not like. A man, as I have said already, can give up father and mother for Christ's sake tolerably easily for the most part, but it is not so easy to give up people like Townley. End of chapter 80 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman